I had the privilege of learning the blues from some legendary musicians. I was one of the few white musicians playing blues back in the 60s, and I want to share some of those stories with you. The 60s and 70s were divisive times, but the blues connected us and always brought us together. I'm Billy Pruitt. Let's talk a blues streak. The year was 1966. It was the first year 8-track audio tapes were out on the market, along with black and white TVs, and we would boost the reception with aluminum foil on top of the rabbit ear antenna, next to the -the state-of-the-art black rotary dial telephone that was the only lifeline for band leaders to call each sideman for the next gig. Otis Rush and I were playing our usual late-night gig at the iSpy Lounge on Chicago's South Side, and... On my way there, walking from my car, a marked squad car pulled up, and the cop rolled down the window and asked, what are you doing in this neighborhood? And I said, hey, I'm, I'm playing with Otis Rush right here. And I pointed at the I Spy Lounge. He said, well, do you have a gun? I said, no, that's illegal. He said, well, my partner here and I, we would never bust you. You should have a gun. They rolled up their window and drove off. Otis and I were inside playing in sync with each other and exchanging licks back and forth, and I was playing a solid shuffle behind him, exactly like he had taught me so patiently. It felt good, really good. And my friend Dick Sherman, who would go on to be a Grammy and Emmy-winning blues historian, was sitting in the front booth, and everybody was laughing and having a great time. The owner had decided to brand his club with a hand-painted huge logo on the entire back wall behind the stage with a solid black shadow outline of the then popular James Bond image with a brother taking aim at somebody with a pistol. Then without warning, shots rang out. Otis immediately dove under the first table by the stage instinctively. He yelled, over here, Billy. Next thing I knew, Otis and I were lying on the floor next to each other, face down on the sticky barroom floor, under the table, with our chins touching the floor as shots rang out from a handgun. Otis's white shirt and tie was getting soiled on the floor while he was trying to keep his cool. As ladies were screaming in the packed ice spy lounge, the shots stopped for a moment. Otis, in a low, nervous voice, said, What a drag. <laughs> what a drag. Well, Prudence, the nickname he gave me. You wanted to learn about the blues, here you go. He always called me Prudence, confusing it with Pruitt. It is soulful Philadelphia, Mississippi way of twisting words around, just like he did in Gambler's Blues when he sang Millionaires. It's hard for me to keep these clothes to wear. Otis had a lot of Otisisms, in addition to name pronunciations, including celebrities. Introducing Janis Joplin, who he called Janet Jocelyn, at Mother Blues when we were trying to get her up to sing. I was constantly grateful, always thanking him for being my mentor, for teaching me the blues. He taught me everything I know, but of course, 
He didn't teach me everything he knew. Hmm, smart man. Let's backtrack all the way to 1956 when Otis recorded Double Trouble. I was 11 years old at the time. I was pretty much a rock and roll expert from the AM radio, but I didn't know what blues was all about. All I know is that I liked it. I didn't know where rock and roll ends and where blues starts. Rock and roll had three chord changes, blues licks, and this white boy couldn't exactly figure it out. But it soon became obvious as eggs for breakfast staring right back at me. Eggs didn't have to be fried, blackened, and crispy the way folks like them down south. They could be over-easy, soft-boiled, hard-boiled, scrambled, or poached. They were still eggs, just as blues were still blues. And if three-chord rock and roll licks were disguised as happy jitterbug music, they were still blues. (laughs) I'm learning. And while Otis wasn't paying me much, these life lessons didn't cost me a thing because I was buying a priceless education, an investment in knowledge that pays the best interest, the best dividends for sure. So, after the gig that night at the I Spy Lounge, Otis and I had decided to go to Harold's Fried Chicken on West 63rd Street, not far from the club. Harold's was right under the noisy elevated tracks known for the defining screech that the brakes made at every stop. In Chicago, we call it the L. And in the wintertime, it was brutally cold. But that night, it was summertime on the south side, and we would always put our guitars in our scruffy guitar cases and walk out and get into Otis's Coupe de Ville. But that night, we saw a few brand-new, pristine, bare-metal bullet holes reflecting the streetlight in an illuminated halo. The driver's door and front quarter panel seemed to be the only casualty of the shooting. He stopped to look and then touched it, and then he seemed a little depressed as he gave a dismissive shrug with his shoulders under his suit that he had brushed off earlier with his hands when we crawled out from under the table. I said, hey, that adds character to your ride, bro. So we put our guitars in the trunk where nobody could see them and they'd be safer in that neighborhood. When we got to Harold's, just as always, we would walk into any public place and I would hear customers who were fans leaning toward their friends, talking quietly under their breath in a friendly chant cackle. Otis, Otis, there's Otis. Even at 3.30 a.m., we were always hungry after a gig, especially when Otis would sometimes get a little carried away drinking all evening entertaining packed houses. A couple of fans at Harold's would usually get an autograph on a Harold's napkin with remnants of barbecue sauce on it. I remember how fulfilling it was to vicariously absorb the praise directed at Otis when he would graciously and accommodatingly ask what their first name was and signing it saying, Thank you kindly when he handed it back. I made a mental note about the correct etiquette about how to accept praise. Then we would get our barbecue at the window, sit down and and talk about it and review the gig we just played no matter how packed or occasionally how small and empty the club might have been. I would ask him the fingering of certain licks and chords. It was like looking in a mirror because he was left-handed. To me, they looked upside down and backwards because he used to play a right-handed ebophone with very heavy-gauge strings and bend them downward, pulling them down instead of pushing upward like a right-handed guitar player. He was very smart by learning how to play a right-handed guitar with strings in the usual order, but he played it upside down. 
He learned that way because if he was asked to sit in at the spare of the moment and he didn't have his guitar in the trunk of his eldo, he could just grab anybody's guitar and simply turn it upside down and play something brilliant. Unlike Hendrix, who played a right-handed guitar upside down, but the big difference with Hendrix was that he strung it differently, which means, long story short, that he could only play his guitar. So if he wanted to sit in and jam with somebody notable, he didn't have his guitar with him. He couldn't just play anybody's guitar. But Otis could. I was always amazed and tried to comprehend how Otis's brain was wired. Because left-handed people use a different part of their brain. And then he would turn over his guitar and play right-handed upside down with the Mississippi Southpaw attitude as he took off in powerful, unpredictable solos as listeners would gasp in awe. Wow. And then my brain was trying to absorb everything he was showing me upside down and backwards. Since I only played by ear, I was afraid that my head might explode. It's no wonder that Otis was a blues legend who had profound influence on every major player of all the six-string masters of yesterday and today. Clapton, Hendrix, Page, and even Buddy Guy, who was also mentored by Otis. I was invited up by Otis when he hired me as his first permanent guitar player for all those years. <laughs> How lucky can a guy get? Talk about being at the right place at the right time. Jeez. And to top it off, when he hired me, I had no idea what a huge star he already was all over the world. Silly me. Thought the Otis Rush Band was just a really good neighborhood band. I wasn't aware of it then, but all my brothers in his band had an important part, aside from holding down the music end. Ernest Gatewood was the bass player. He saved me one night when we were parking before a gig to play at Mother Blues on North Wells Street. When a young teenage gang of unorganized rowdy thieves hid behind a card and watched me park as I got out with my guitar and I was walking toward the club. They surrounded me in a wolf pack and had latched onto my guitar, me not wanting to let go of it or surrender under any circumstances in a tug of war. Just as Ernie pulled up looking for a parking space and without hesitating, he got out of his Cadillac, sporting a huge chain that he used to lock up his steering wheel before the club was invented later on. He twirled the heavy chain over his head like a cowboy's lasso running toward the kids and made it clear that he would roll them over without remorse. As the teenage gang of thieves quickly disappeared into the night, I thanked Ernie for his intervention from rescuing my guitar. Next was Eddie Shaw, the tenor sax player. He was the first to go mobile into the crowd long before there were radio mics. I had no idea Eddie was already on his way to a well-established recording career at Alligator Records as king of the tenor sax. His band was called Eddie Shaw and the Wolfgang, known for backing up Howlin' Wolf. Eddie was a singer, sideman, songwriter, soloist, slick band leader, and tavern owner. Then, of course, there was the legendary Sam Lay, who first became noticed after inventing the double shuffle on the very first Paul Butterfield blues album that changed blues history. 
Thinking back, I didn't know any of this history before I was in the Otis Rush Band when I walked into Mother Blues at 1305 North Wells Street at the end of the hippie district of Old Town. Back then, Old Town was a little blues metropolis that was big-hearted and cold-blooded. It was a machine with a million moving parts. That's where I lived. The first time I ever saw Otis was on a slow, quiet Monday night. I walked into Mother Blues and kicked the snow off my shoes at the door. When I saw a guy I had never heard called Otis Rush, who was using a unique guitar language crystallized in a distorted Fender basement amp. I thought he was just a neighborhood jam band who was maybe just playing for the door trying to get up some gas money that he could share with the rest of the band. I overheard Eddie say, man, jobs is scarce. Because there were only a very few people in the audience and I was really impressed with Otis's melodies he was singing. You could hear the power of gravel deep down inside. Yeah, I'm buying this. Otis sang a bunch of songs that I had never heard of. And at that time, as a layman, I was wondering why he was playing his guitar upside down and wearing a suit and tie. Maybe he was new to the blues because everybody else was wearing raggedy clothes. Otis took a break and sat down at the empty table over in the corner by the pool table. Since at that time, there were never any dressing rooms and blues clubs where an artist could get some solitude and privacy. He looked a little lonesome and approachable as the waitress brought him a drink on the rocks. So I couldn't resist going over and I asked him if I could sit down. With his hand, he gave the international gesture toward the empty chair, so I sat down. I asked him why I had never heard of the blues songs he was singing. He politely said those were his songs on the song list that he had written on the back of a house menu that was taped on top of his amp. So I assumed he meant they were songs by other artists that was on his song list. He was so humble and easy to talk to, and we struck up a nice conversation. Since there was nobody in the club, it was easy to hear him over the distorted jukebox blaring out Magic Sam and Muddy Water songs. Our conversation evolved into my humble disclosure that I was an aspiring guitar player and had just moved to Chicago looking for a job, so I need to learn some real blues. He said, I'd like to hear you. He appeared to actually be interested in my pie-in-the-sky ambition. A few minutes later, he looked at his watch and he asked me to start the next set in his place. Well, since I had nothing else going for me at the time, this sounds like a fun audition. I figured it's worth a shot and I told him I didn't have my guitar with me. He said, that's okay, just grab mine. And I was still wondering why he played his guitar upside down. But who am I to question that? Because he seemed to be a really, really great player. Even though what he was doing might not be musically correct, he found a way to make it work for him. He looked at his watch again and gave me the international pointing hand motion to go ahead. So I took a small step up to the Mother Blues stage area and was searching through my mind for something to play. Uh, let me get used to his guitar here. Oh man, it's, it's still warm from Otis's hand. All right, I got a place. I'm gonna go for Stormy Monday. This is the coolest chord I know. Mm -hmm. Well, so I've got to sing good now. They call it Stormy Monday. Mm hmm. Sing out, Billy. Ah, but Tuesdays, it's just as bad. I don't know if he's gonna like this, but. 
Oh, I'm gonna go for it. Come on, fingers, you can do better than that. Oh, I'm getting nervous now. Hmm, okay. Yeah. Wayne Bennett showed me that. Mm -hmm. Maybe Otis wants, wants to hear something more current. I'm gonna go for Hideaway. Yeah, Freddie King. You can't go wrong with Freddie King. I just learned this. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm gonna go for the break. Here I go. Come on, fingers. Oh. I just squeaked by on that one. All right. How about a little wolf? He's gonna like the wolf. Oh, oh, he's giving me the sign for one more. The international sign. Play one more. So, uh, I'm gonna go for, you know what? I'm gonna pull my harp out, shoot my best shot, and do a little tradition. Please don't go. Baby, please don't go down to New Orleans. You know I love you so. Otis walked back up on stage, finishing his drink with his right hand, reaching out for his guitar with his left hand. Ah, I'm starting to understand why he plays guitar upside down. I watched him in awe play the rest of the set, amazed once again at how he was breaking all the rules that the purists criticize. Pulling down those heavy strings instead of pushing up, making them sing with so much authority, there's no question why he was the leader of the band. Before I knew it, it was the last set, so he went back to get paid, and he handed each guy in the band a secret wad of cash inside his closed fist, asking them not to count their money in front of the other band members. As the band was packed up and said goodnight and left, I couldn't help but think he played his incredible licks to an empty house that nobody heard, but I did. Those licks were absorbed into the walls of Mother Blues and were lost forever in those bricks when the club was torn down later. I had drifted away in that thought when he sat back down and the sound of his voice brought me back to reality in an unimaginable dream when he asked me to join his band. Was this a dream? He said, my first gig is this Saturday and we're playing the first Ann Arbor Blues Festival in Ann Arbor, Michigan. The club was empty. The jukebox was off, and the house lights were on. The only sound was the bartender washing glasses in back, and Otis started pouring out his soul to me, story after story. What an honor. I knew I would always remember this moment of history as long as I live. He said that all the glory of show business is just as phony as Tinseltown. All it is, shiny tinsel that doesn't mean anything. Nothing is real but the way you feel when you play your music. Show business and blues is just a big circus, and most of the guys running everything are clowns. I filed that thought away in the back of my mind. He said, I hope the people can hear that when I play. I hope the people can hear that I'm angry because I am. It's so 
hard to find gigs and get paid, and it makes me feel a little sluggish. Otis always thought he wasn't getting credit and he wasn't getting enough royalties. He felt that he was being cheated somehow. He said when I'm up on stage and I think about that and I'm playing, I just want to go home. Sometimes you just got to look at the world right in the eye and tell it what you think. The struggle gives me strength and makes me play better. And I hope when I'm playing, I sound angry because I am. It dawned on me that at my ripe old age, now thinking back, everything was logically coming into full circle. The will of the blues is to be passed on through the ages as all the great old bluesmen that taught Otis back in Philadelphia, Mississippi, passed it on to him. And now the great late Otis Rush seemed to pass the torch on to me. And now I'm passing it on to you in my story, if you want to lend me your ear. He was always fighting his demons within himself and didn't like to travel, especially flying. But he was such an international blues star, he had no choice. And that's why he acted a little downcast and melancholy. So I tried to capture the way the world must have looked through his eyes in a song. But how can only me pay tribute to a man I idolized, who accepted me and treated me like his brother? How can I leave a little monument and a song to the mentor of my lifetime, who is the biggest profound effect of anyone on my life, by far? In teaching me the skill of how to describe your feelings musically, I've been told this might be the most sorrowful song out there, but sometimes the saddest songs are healing. But it's for real. It's the way I feel. He might be looking down on us right now, or he might be looking up. Either way, I wrote this for you, Otis. This song is called Upside Down in the Blues. Sideshow all my life. I kept my thoughts to myself. Ain't much I haven't tried. Well, now I wonder where all the time is gone. I guess I've been in this circus too long. I wanna go home. Just wanna go home, y'all. Never had no roots or such, and I ain't one to stay in touch. They say that Christmas on the road will make you strong. I guess I've just been in the circus too long. Wanna go home. Lions and tigers pacing in their cages. I catch them dreaming about the better days, and I wish I could send them back where 
they belong they say they've been in this circus too long they wanna they wanna go can see it in their eyes they want to go home gets in your blood and it won't come out you know the circus I've been talking about if I could leave I'd have surely gone but now I've been in this Circus too long I wanna go home I just wanna go home My inside is out they can see right through my left is right and it's backwards too I cannot change I can't change my song cause I've been upside down in these blues so long I feel like I'm home I'm finally home well 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 Feel like I'm home, finally home. More about Billy Pruitt at BillyPruitt.com or find him on Facebook. This podcast was produced at RocketChicago.com.